Hey there, welcome to this edition of The Shalene Show. Today, we are talking to one of my favorite returning guests of the show, Dr. Kelly Kasperson. Dr. Kelly Kasperson is a urologist, and she's just really devoted her practice and her latest book to helping women enjoy their bodies, enjoy the pleasure of having sex. And that means understanding how their bodies work. It also means understanding how men's bodies are different and how we approach sex differently. Today, I am happy to have her back on the show because she's just so like real and honest and raw and funny and doesn't make any of this stuff uncomfortable. You feel very at ease asking her whatever uncomfortable question that you feel embarrassed to ask your doctor or your girlfriends. We're going to ask them today on the show. I have an ask of you, though, before you listen to this episode, and that is there's going to be something that we've talked about that you probably need to talk to your partner about, or or maybe we didn't answer your specific question, but I'll bet you a million bucks it's covered in her latest book, You Are Not Broken. So I highly encourage you to pick up a copy of this book. It's one of those things that you will turn back to, like maybe six months from now, you're going to have some weird thing going on and you're going to wish you had this book. You're going to wish you could remember that resource. So check out our show notes where we've got a link there to pick up the book. I've got my own copy and I just downloaded the Audible because I'm going to be traveling across the country and I love her voice. I just love her style. And in this episode, I asked Kelly the questions that you have submitted to me that you're maybe uncomfortable to ask your OBGYN or it's just this thought that you're having and you're wondering what's going on. We're going to talk about female sexual desire. We're going to talk about libido. We're going to talk about vaginal dryness. We're going to talk about, is this normal? Is this normal? What's going on with my husband? What's going on with my wife? Like all of the questions that you have felt uncomfortable to ask when it comes to sex in your body. And is this normal? Kelly is going to give us answers, and I just love how she makes it so comfortable. So without further ado, Dr. Kelly Kasperson. Dr. Kelly, thank you so much for being our favorite sex expert who is invited back to the show, The Shalene Show. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me back. It's important that we have you on today because I know you're really in demand with your new book, and today we're really going to focus on the topic of like, all the reasons why society has taught us there's something wrong with us when it comes to sex. And it's an epidemic. Where did that even begin? It began by a woman crying in my office and me being like, oh my gosh, I went to med school and became a pelvic surgeon and I still don't know a thing about female sex. And if like, mm. I don't know, then nobody else has any, they don't have any education. And we get our wow. education from like our partners who might not even have our own body parts, right? So they don't know. Or we get our education from Hollywood or maybe porn and they mm -hmm. don't know. That's just a performance that's been edited and scripted, right? And so it's like, oh, we really don't know. And so then that's why I started the podcast and the book to be like, women are hungry for accurate knowledge. And here we are. Literally, I put it out to my audience. I'm like, what questions do you want to ask for a friend? The reason why I had to frame it that way is because there's so much shame associated with the questions we don't know the answers to. And also, if I'm asking this about myself and someone's reading it, then they're going to know that there's something weird about me. So I, I literally framed it that way so that people would feel more comfortable asking their questions. And boy, did we get a bunch of good ones for you today. I love it. That's what I do too. Like I just did an in-person audience one and I'm like, ask your questions for a friend. 
and everybody asks for a oh, friend. good. Yeah, because we all feel like we're the That's only great. one with problems, and, but we're not. Our friends have them too. <laughs> How much of what is, I guess, a disconnect or misinformation as it pertains to women and sex and men and sex really is a result of like porn and like what is portrayed in movies and how is that creating a disconnect? How does that impact us? Well, because we get so little education, right? Then we see something and then we assume, oh, they're portraying the real world instead of they're portraying something Mm. totally fake made up by somebody on their eighth take, right? Like (laughs) who's just had a lot of hair and makeup, like it's acting. And it was actually the economist who did it. It was like watching sex on film, whether it's porn or Hollywood, is like watching a James Bond movie and expecting that to be what like an employee in the British civil services or like it's like nothing like it. But we're like, oh, that's what's on TV. It's just so misrepresented. The three would be like, spontaneous desire, mutual spontaneous, Mm. like instant orgasm, and then the female having an orgasm from vaginal penetration. I'm sure there's a million more. Let's start with that one. Yeah. So putting the penis in the vagina results in an orgasm about 30% of the time. So if you're like, eh, it doesn't really do it for me, you're actually in the majority Mm because the vagina is close, but it's not our organ of pleasure, which is the clitoris which wraps Mm -hmm. around the vagina. So some people do get pleasure and orgasms from vaginal penetration. That's the 30%. But think about like the sex ed we give people. It's a disease and pregnancy prevention plan, right? Like the clitoris is not involved. And then we become adults and we're like, yeah, I don't know. I've never had an orgasm, which is like seven to 10% of women. You're like, nobody ever taught you that there was even like an organ that you had to pay attention to, right? Like our education is so basic and then we don't get any more as adults. What we really don't get is any education around pleasure. Nine states talk about pleasure in the last data I saw. And when you say states, do you mean in school? Yeah, like public sex education that is mandated. So pleasure is very new, as is consent. Consent in state education is very new. So if you happen to be Gen X or older, you probably didn't get either one of those. There are people who say, like, we don't have a great sex life, or I'm not that into sex. And there are people who are like, oh, our sex life is amazing. And you say, that really is up to you. So what do you mean by it's within our power? Well, I think it's, number one, realizing nobody taught us how our individual bodies work. And everybody's desires and fantasies are their own fingerprints, right? There's no, Mm -hmm. like, am I normal in this or that? We're all different. And if especially if we're gendered or socialized as women, what do we call women who like sex too much? right? We call them bad names. So we've kind of been conditioned to like not desire it too much. And then we feel broken if we desire it too much. And we feel broken if we don't desire it too much. So we're really in this paradox, especially if you're paired with a male, right? His libido tends to be what is the woman cycled around. My libido is either Mm -hmm. too high compared to his or too low compared to his. His is the normative one. Instead of being like, everybody's got a different amount that they want to have sex. And of course, within uh, you like pizza more, they like pasta, you like lifting weights, they like doing bike stuff of like, yeah, we just have different likes. And we make it mean like we're not good people instead of being like, this might be how you are. But the other thing is like, if you just go out to restaurants and eat chicken your whole life, you might be like, I don't really like restaurants. It's just always chicken. And then people yeah. are like, you know, there's like an entire freaking menu that you've like nobody ever let you look at because they just ordered chicken for you your whole life. And you're like, 
What? Restaurants are amazing. And you can even ask the chef to like do it a certain way for you. And they do. <laughs> That's how sex can be. Of like, you can just have people feed you chicken your whole life. And then you're like, meh. Men's bodies are so different from ours in the way that they receive pleasure. So what are some of the biggest disconnects when it comes to like, like you said, being spontaneously in the mood at the same time? Why does it seem like men are? Are they more so, or is that just, again, just a stereotype? It's a stereotype. They're gendered to, which, you know, gender stereotypes hurt everybody, right? Not just women. So right. men, they're, they're gendered to, like, always want it all the time. And then if they don't, because mm. they're a human who doesn't always want sex all the time, they feel bad. Am I less of a man? I'm supposed to just want it all the time. Does that mean I'm not as much of a man? Like, they've got their own issues with how they're supposed to behave as well, because those stereotypes are, you just got to want it all the time. There's something wrong with you. No, they're just humans. And like, we have jobs where you sh probably shouldn't have sex at the job, <laughs> right? Like, there are times in our day yeah, yes. where we're actually not supposed <laughs> to be wanting sex all the time. There's like appropriate yeah. times. So yeah, I think it's a little bit hormones. I think it's a little bit gender stereotypes. I think it's a little bit like women not understanding that you can desire things. You can like, you're not going to do it in public and tell them, but like you can find things attractive and find things sexy and yeah. like read around. You can have pleasure and sexy time around you if you want to. I think so many people don't because they're like, yeah. they think they shouldn't. I find that a lot of the questions and concerns that people share when they talk about what's working, what's not working, is that they want to want sex, but they don't want it. And so that's why they think they're broken. And that's what I'm hearing from the women in my audience and from the men in my audience, or sometimes on behalf of the men in my audience, it's as they're aging, not being able to get an erection and keep an erection. Well, I, I mean, the erection stuff's super interesting because it's super, a good friend of mine, she's just like, guess what? Your neighbor has erectile dysfunction. Like, it's so common, but like, nobody ever <laughs> talks about it. So, like, the Cleveland yeah. Clinic says 40% of men by age 40, right? And, and it's what we 40%. make. 40%. 40% by age 40. 40% by 40. That's easy. Wow. Yeah. And you just go up 50% by 50, 60% by 60. Like they, they keep it simple for us so we can remember statistics. Okay. And that doesn't mean permanent never works at all. But it just means like as our bodies age, sometimes blood flow is a little more of a challenge, let alone if we're on medications or we've got – we smoke or we do alcohol or drugs. Like all these different things affect erections, right? I literally got my brothers to not smoke cigarettes because I told them it would mess with their erections. That's clever. Yeah, that's an incentive. Totally. For men, is it the solution? Is it hormone replacement or is it the little blue pill? Is it something yeah, else? Not always. So sometimes testosterone is correlated with erectile dysfunction, but you can have either or. You can have normal testosterone with erectile dysfunction. You can have low testosterone, have great erections. So they're not always tied in. Viagra works by keeping blood flow in the penis more, by helping the blood flow. But just the funny story about that is it was being tried as a blood pressure med and it didn't, it's kind of crappy. And so they're like, can we get the steady pills back? And they're like, no, we're not going to give these back. <laughs> so like the and people- that's and, how they figured out. And, like that, and there was yeah, off-label use. Totally. Because before Viagra, erections were all on a man's head. What is that? What do you mean? They always thought oh. it, was, it was your brain. And then we said, oh, we have this Viagra thing. It's in your body. And yeah. now we, we've kind of erased the fact that like depression and anxiety and like things going on in your brain can affect your erections. So we have to like, we have to remember that it can be body or mind. A lot of things. A lot of things. What about pelvic floor tightness? It, not so much for erectile dysfunction, but certainly for pain with penetration for the vulva mm. owners of the group. 
I see it quite commonly. And, you know, it's kind of, I always tell people, it's kind of like I've got the tricky shoulder that gets tight and like a massage therapist has to like get it out and I can't like think it loose. That's how pelvic floor is of like really working with a physical therapist that can help you loosen it instead of like, I'm going to relax my pelvis now. It's harder to do. Yeah. Brett was, my husband was recently diagnosed with a tight pelvic floor resulting in neuropathy. And he tried to just figure out what was going on for, I don't know, like 16 months or something. And they never thought it was pelvic floor because he wasn't having erectile dysfunction or any problems there. But then he later learned a lot of the experts that he's going to primarily treat women. And there are doctors who specialize in pelvic floor therapy. So what are some of the signs? Let's start with women first who are experiencing painful sex. Is the pelvic floor something they should look into first? I think it's get everything looked at at the same time because a lot of times okay. it's several things. The pelvic floor is muscles. Muscles are there to protect us. If we have dry skin, changing hormone levels with perimenopause, menopause, so our skin hurts, then our pelvis is going to get tight to try to protect the skin from hurting. So it can kind of like add up on itself. So sometimes you need vaginal hormone cream. You can use non-hormonal things. You can do pelvic floor physical therapy. I like to do it all at once instead of like, I tried something, I failed. I tried something, I failed. It just sets up this kind of not succeeding cycle instead of saying, let's tackle everything at the same time to get you as good as we can. Mm, okay. How do you know who you're supposed to go to? I think if it's, if it is pain with sex or pelvic pain, I would actually start, if your insurance allows you, I would start with a physical therapist who's been trained in pelvic floor. Because that person then knows the gynecologist or the urologist to hook you in with, because not all gynes are going to be good at it. Not all urologists are going to be good at it. But if you start with the physical therapist, they're already tied in because they've got their network. Hmm. What do you just go to Yelp? Herman and Wallace, I think .com or .org, is like the nationwide pelvic floor. It's kind of a certifying group for pelvic floor physical therapists. So Herman and Wallace is a great one. You just type in your zip code. And so those are physical therapists who've done additional training in pelvic floor pelvic pain. And a lot of them will see pain with sex, pain after having a baby, pain after a hip injury, all that stuff. Okay, that's good. All right. This person says that they recently started dating a gentleman who's very well endowed. And even with copious amounts of lubrication, it just won't fit. To which I say, oh, don't cry for me, Argentina. But her question is, is there something else I could be doing? Yeah. I mean, the number one question is, how's your vulvar health? How's your vaginal health? If you are perimenopause, postmenopause, are you on the vaginal estrogen? Sounds like she's already using lube. The other thing that, again, we don't get taught in our disease and prevention program for sex ed is that the female pelvis has to be aroused. We have to get blood flow because what arousal to the pelvis does is it lengthens the vagina and tips it back. Wow. Creating more room. Did not know that. Otherwise, if you're like, if you're not turned on and you're just starting having sex by putting a penis in, the brain's like, is this a tampon? Is this just a very large, what is this? Versus like, oh, we're going to have sexy time now. Maybe we want to have an orgasm. Let's get that blood flow in. Let's get that arousal. So I would make sure her arousal is at a good level before she would penetrate. But we don't know that. We think sex starts by putting something in the vagina. All genders think (laughs) that. And so we got to take a step back and be like, is she properly aroused? to be able to even try to accommodate. And even then, like some people are very different in sizes. And then I would say sex is way more than just putting a penis in a vagina. 
Can we use hands? Yeah. Can we use toys? Can we do external play? Is there something else where you guys can feel the connection, the intimacy that you want and still be able to work together, even if somebody's 4'11 and the other person's 7'7"? Seven, seven? <laughs> In your practice, how often do you find that the most challenging part of this is helping couples to communicate? 95% mm. and then 5% vaginal estrogen. <laughs> okay. Yeah. People don't want to talk about it. They're like, how can I not have this difficult conversation? And I'm like, the answer is having the difficult conversation. And then you realize, like, I didn't die. It's okay. We worry about the other person's feelings or how are they going to interpret this? And if we're talking about it, does that mean that there's a problem with it? Is there a problem with me? And maybe it's about timing too, right? Like every difficult conversation in my mind, if you make it less of a big deal and really consider the timing, it's a million percent easier. Yeah. Yeah. And usually it's way worse in our head. I had to talk to my husband about something. Yeah. I spent like four months trying to figure it out, like in the shower of how to do it. And then I just was like, fine, I'll just do it. And he's like, yeah, okay, that sounds fine. And I was like, <laughs> like, it's way worse in our <laughs> head. Like, well, that was easy. Yeah. I'm like, I spent right? months. I spent months trying to not have that difficult conversation. All right. This person says, after turning 50, my libido went 100% into hiding. My labs indicate that I have zero estrogen and I'm considering hormone replacement therapy. Is this a guaranteed way to improve my interest in sex? Then she also says, is there any other proven strategies at work? Yeah. So no, it's not a guarantee. We are not machines, people. We are human beings. We are all different. We grew up in the like post-industrial revolution. We think we're living in machines, but we're not. These are bodies. Yeah. And I always tell people, yeah. they're not Toyotas and it didn't come with a manual. So we're just trying to figure <laughs> it out. Estrogen helps. This is interesting. Postmenopausal. The two biggest reasons that women stop having sex is availability of partner and menopausal symptoms. And I would say I can't help you with the number one. That one's on you. Yeah. But like yeah. availability of partner is a huge reason why women stop having sex mm. or have sex. And the number two is estrogen helps with night sweats, hot flashes, joints, aches and pains, moodiness, anxiety, all the things that it helps makes you feel like healthier, more like yourself. There's is your libido. There's your interest in sex, right? But mm -hmm, it's not mm -hmm. that estrogen is a direct link to spontaneous desire. And the other myth about this is that you even need desire. Go have sex worth hmm. desiring. The desire part is not actually an essential ingredient. Snacks are nice in the car, but you don't need snacks in the car to go take the journey. Well, I think of desire, maybe it's a definition, but like when I think about desire, it means that I'm turned on. Am I looking at the wrong definition? No, there's, I mean, it depends upon what definition you want. In this person's question, she wants desire before she goes and has sex. What you just said is desire mm -hmm. is when I have sex. And then there's people whose desire comes when they're done having sex. Like, oh my God, that was mm. so good. I always forget how good this is. Can you remind me how good this is? I always forget. They're desiring sex after I don't call that the desire. Sex. I call that gratitude. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, oh, I want it more now that I just had it. So desire can come before, during, and after. Or not at all. Just go have sex worth desiring. Is there a hormone that is more responsible for vaginal dryness or vaginal lubrication, if you will? Estrogen and sometimes Estro testosterone. And, and that's localized. So that's pelvic, not systemic, whole body. And then if you look at testosterone in a female, first of all, we've gendered testosterone and we've made it the male hormone. But women actually have lots totally. of testosterone, which also goes down after menopause. But testosterone really, if you're like, give me the hormone that has the best chance of increasing a spontaneous libido, if that's what you want, it'd be testosterone. Yeah. I'm going to read another question on that 
same topic from one of our listeners who says, I've been taking testosterone for a few years, a variety of amounts ranging from seven to 14 days apart. Once I started working out and doing strength training, I had to adjust the dosages because my levels suddenly became insanely high, which I feel like was contributing to excessive amounts of hair growth on my face, arms, thighs, but thinning of the hair on my head. My wrists have manly dark hair also on my thighs. So now I am doing laser hair removal. But my question is, is this just from the testosterone or could there be some other underlying hormone imbalance I should be looking at? I mean, off the top, it's probably testosterone. Just because you are telling me you're taking testosterone and adjusting the doses. I would be worried you're on too Mm -hmm. high of a testosterone dose. Women have testosterone. When we replace testosterone in menopause, we want to replace to a female dose of testosterone, unless you're trying to transition, because some people are, but most people aren't. Mm -hmm. So we're going to keep their testosterone in, in a female range. And certainly if you're having that much changes, you're probably in a very high range. Once you get that checked, then you can start looking at other imbalances, but I'd say that's the elephant in the room. So when it comes to forms of testosterone and estrogen, can you tell us, because there's injections and pellets, there's lotions and there's capsules and a variety of other modes to take both of these hormones. Do you have a preferred for either? My preferred is it works for you and it's cheap because if you're going to do hormone replacement therapy, you can be on it for the rest of your life. So you're looking at 30 to 40 years of this stuff. Average age of menopause, 51. Average lifespan of a woman, 80. So there's 30 years of hormones if you want to be on it. And yes, you can be on it until you die. The myth of like, oh, you got to come off of it as quickly as you can. That's an old myth and the current guidelines don't support that. They say if the benefits outweigh the risks, you can continue this. So that's my first one. Cheap and you can tolerate it. The good news is there's lots of different formulations. I like the easy stuff. I like the stuff I don't have to remember. So if you have a uterus, you need a progestin. I like progestin secreting IUDs for that or just an oral pill at night. That's progesterone. Mm. Estrogen, non-oral is safest. If you And we're talking menopause, hormone replacement therapy. You're probably going to get a, a lower risk for blood clot if you're non-oral on your estrogen. The problem with oral estrogen, problem or benefit, is it's really cheap, right? So a lot of people are attracted to it or their insurance covers it. But you're probably going to give yourself a little Mm -hmm. bit of a higher of a risk on oral. Higher risk of what? Blood clot and lowering your libido. So I love the estrogen patches. There is an estrogen vaginal ring Mm. that is systemic. You can wear it for three months. So like my idiot proof is a progestin IUD and an estrogen ring. You don't have to take a pill. You don't have to do a patch. Wow. It's what all the pros, it's not all the pros want because it's easy and you don't have to remember it. For testosterone, I love using the FDA approved male product, which is Testum or Testosterone 1%. You dose it for women. It's a gel. You put it on your calf or your thigh. You're not going to get those crazy high spikes like you get with injections and pellets, like that one person ah. was talking about the hair growth. So yeah, you're not yeah. going to get the high spikes and then the troughs. You're going to get a nice little steady state and it's dirt cheap compared to getting the pellets or the injections. Oh, wow. I just want to address this for a second because I do think that's a really common misconception is that you're doing hormone replacement therapy like to kind of get you through that transition of menopause and then you're supposed to come off of it. Some of the misconceptions around that have to do with estrogen and increasing your chances of cancer. I know we've talked about this until you're blue in the face, but what are some of the pros of staying on hormone replacement therapies? Until you're dead. Until you're dead. I mean, I tell people this. I'm like, if a man had the option of taking a pill that increased their life expectancy by three years, do you think all men would be on it? Yeah. Probably. Probably. There you go. 
There's your hormones. Oh, that's not convincing enough. Living longer is not convincing enough for you. Okay. Well, it decreases your risk of insulin resistance and diabetes, decreases colon cancer by 30%, decreases risk of heart disease and myocardial infarction, decreases your risk of Alzheimer's by about 30%, decreases your risk of Parkinson's, decreases your risk of multiple sclerosis by about 30%, is the best protector against osteoporosis, decreases your osteoporosis risk by about uh, 50 to 70%. Wow. That's all very, very convincing. Like, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Unless you have an absolute contraindication, you've got bad liver disease, you have a previous blood clot, or you have a previous breast cancer, which currently in America, mm. you're, you're going to be hard pressed for somebody to give you hormones after a breast cancer diagnosis. But mm. we have 5 million people in this country who are survivors of breast cancer, and they're starting to get vocal. And I think we're going to get more research, and we're going to help them out. Because the number one killer of people who've had breast cancer is heart disease. And estrogen decreases your risk of heart disease. So they're worried about their bones and their heart, just like the rest of us are. I've got a a couple of friends who have had breast cancer, and I think to myself that they just don't even have the same solutions that someone who hasn't had breast cancer, who's perimenopausal or menopausal, has. Like, So they're experiencing all these symptoms, and what are they supposed to do? We tell women to suffer. Mm. I'll be very quick, but I'll tell you how we treat the men, because I get to treat both of them. Prostate cancer, you weren't allowed to be on testosterone these guys were upset. They liked being on their testosterone. So we said, okay, well, just in a study and just if it's low risk prostate cancer. And now we're like, oh yeah, you can stay on your testosterone if you have low risk prostate cancer. That's all within my short career. And so Mm. that's what gives me high hopes for the breast cancer people of like, we did it with testosterone and prostate cancer for the men. But again, two different types of cancers. But my point is medicine can change as we learn more and we learn how to care for people. But yeah, 5 million breast cancer survivors, they're like, what are we to do? Our hot flashes are horrible. I want to protect my bones. My mom has osteoporosis. My mom has Alzheimer's. What can I do about this? Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's a real problem. Well, it's hard to get studies for women in general. Isn't that true? Like, it's just almost impossible because there's so many other factors that have to be considered. And so that makes the research more expensive. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. We don't have a female testosterone product, right, in this country. Australia does, but we don't. The FDA said it would cost a billion dollars to do that to approve it for women. Now, men have 13 different types of testosterone that they can take, and to get another one approved is you know millions still, but it's not a billion dollars. So the barrier to entry to prove safety for women is much different than men. So we take a male product, mm-hmm. we divide it by 10, and we give it to women because that's all we have. Wow. Okay, you know I would not be interrupting this episode unless I had something hugely important to tell you, a discovery. So every time we pack to go anywhere, there's this ongoing battle between Brett and myself over the weight of my bag. I am an overpacker. I like to have options. I like to bring a heavy suitcase. So I like to push it right to the edge, like exactly 50 pounds. But until recently, I was just guessing. It felt like 50 pounds, but I really wouldn't know until we got to the airport. Well, as you know, we're going to be traveling for the next eight months, so we need a new luggage. I did a little research. Get this. I found a luggage company that makes luggage with a built-in weight indicator. I'm like, this has to have been designed by a woman. And it was. It was designed by actress Shay Mitchell. I don't know if you know who that is, but I love the idea that she's created this luggage line that's super affordable And are you ready for my favorite word, fashionable? And it's got a built-in weight indicator in it. The bags are washable. 
And they have tons of interior pockets so you can like keep everything organized. They come in a bunch of different colors. They always have those 360 gliding wheels. Thank you. And a handle that is actually comfortable. And she's designed this luggage so that it doesn't look beat up after you've taken it on a million different trips. So whether you're packing for eight months or you just want to take a quick trip this weekend and you want to know for sure if your bag is going to fit in the overhead, you have to check out BASE and it's spelled B-E-I-S. And now listeners of The Shaleen Show get 15% off your first purchase by going to BASE, B-E-I-S, travel.com. Okay, don't forget that. BASE travel.com forward slash Shaleen. That gets you 15% off your first purchase. Basetravel.com forward slash Shaleen. Oh, did I mention they have 30,000 five-star reviews? Not bad. We don't have a female testosterone product, right, in this country. Australia does, but we don't. The FDA said it would cost a billion dollars to do that to approve it for women. Now, men have 13 different types of testosterone that they can take, and to get another one approved is you know, millions still, but it's not a billion dollars. So the barrier to entry to prove safety for women is much different than men. So we take a male product, mm-hmm. we divide it by 10, and we give it to women because that's all we have. Wow. And I know we've addressed this before, but I, I want to talk about it again because this question comes up over and over and over again, and that is, who's the best practitioner that I should look for when it comes to considering hormone replacement, hormone therapies? Yeah, it's a really good question. North American Menopause Society, so menopause.org is their website. So it's NAMS, which is the North American Menopause Society. And they're the ones who come up with the guidelines, wonderful, wonderful guidelines. And people who tend to follow the NAMS guidelines are really trying to follow evidence-based safe levels. They tend to be the people who aren't putting you through really expensive pellets. You know, there's a lot of Mm. people who want to make a lot of money because traditional medicine has blown off women and they don't know how to help them. And so women are kind of being funneled into like the more pill clinics and stuff like that where it's very expensive and a lot of people can't pay that. And I'm here to tell you, it doesn't have to be expensive. There are plenty of perfectly reasonable products that are FDA approved and your insurance even covers a lot of them. You just got to find those people who know about them. Another topic that came up pretty regularly and for a variety of reasons is mental health and sexual health. So a couple things. Number one, I had quite a few people asking, it seems to them that their ADHD affects their ability to be present while they're having sex. And then I also had quite a few people asking how their SSRIs might be diminishing their libido. I'd say for the ADHD or the people who have the attention issues, training in mindfulness mm-hmm. and training in not latching on to the, oh, a new thought. I'm going to latch onto it and bring it here in the bedroom with me <laughs> of like seeing the thought, letting it go, refocusing. And you get better at that the more you train it. And that works for anybody who, you know, the average woman, she's got how many things on her plate, right? Of like yeah. blocking out time, including blocking out brain time to be like, orgasms and pleasure only live in the present moment. And if we're thinking about the past or the future, it's you're just not going to be successful. You literally have to be present, which is why sex can be so cool because it's like mindfulness yeah, practice. That's really cool. And what about those who are on SSRIs? Does that impact libido? It does. And the ability to orgasm because SSRIs increase serotonin in the brain and serotonin's like the, I'm pretty good. Like, I'm pretty good right now with how things are. Mm-hmm. And sex really more is like the dopamine. Like, I want to seek out. I want to try to 
find some of this pleasure. And so it's because we're increasing serotonin, like possibly decreasing dopamine, that you're going to see SSRIs decrease sex drive, decrease the ability to orgasm. For some people, that's temporary. They say, stick it out. It might get better. For some people, they say, go on a lower dose. For some people, they say, is there any other way you can either get off the meds or you can add meds to kind of counter that serotonin effect of the SSRIs? Testosterone also. Testosterone can help. There's a couple studies showing testosterone's efficacy in reversing or helping the sexual dysfunction that's with SSRIs. One of these comments said, I have diminished libido. I just don't have the interest. My husband also doesn't seem to be as interested. Also, sometimes struggles with erectile dysfunction. And so it's just not that big of a part of our lives anymore. And I feel like if we continue to both be okay with this, eventually we're not going to be having sex at all. And is that a bad thing? No. You don't you don't have to do anything for anybody else except for what works for you and in your couple, right? And I think that's like we go on the internet and we're like, how many times a week is normal? What's everybody else doing? What's my neighbor doing? And it's like, what's good for you guys? Yeah. Are you guys happy? Is your relationship happy? You guys have sex because somebody else is having sex? Like, eh, no. I would just make sure, like, is he happy? Are you happy? Great. What's your take? Yeah. You have a different thought? Yeah, I do, I guess. And it's from personal anecdote, right? It's just, it's just my own personal experience. Like that is such an incredibly important thing that two of us shared together. Recently, I was recovering from a surgery and we couldn't have sex for like two weeks. And I was just like, do I even like him? Like we were not like friendly with each other. He wasn't as like physically touchy feely. I noticed after like a week, like there weren't as many compliments and there, we weren't holding hands as much. We weren't doing like the loving physical things as much. And we were also kind of being more short with each other. For me, it's something that brings us closer together. Mm-hmm. I think my own experience obviously taints the way that I think somebody else, well, gosh, what if? And I also think about that person who's like, I'm not working out much anymore and I'm not really into eating healthy anymore and it's fine. I'm okay with it. But like, are they convincing themselves of that or could they feel like so much different if they just figured a few things out, I guess? Like, I, I hate to think that anyone would just be like throwing the towel. Yeah. And I think that's why it's so important for you to share your experiences so people can be like, hmm, what would that be like? If from my end, I get so many women who are like, people just should on them all the time and tell them they have to do all these things. And so that's where I come from of like, if you're good, you're good. Now, let's do the exercise and eating well thing. Like, I just don't feel like doing that. Well, there's health benefits to it, right? It's going to be good mm-hmm. for you long term. And you could say the same for sex. And so it's like, it's actually really good for you. It's good for pair bonding. It's great for sleep. We have studies that show people who are sexually active live longer. They have less heart disease. Like we've got all these health benefits of sex. But if you guys are like, well, let's have some sex to prevent heart disease. You're still not, <laughs> you're still right. like kind of getting the point of it. So yeah. to me, I'm like, you know, talk with your partner. But I think some people like, they're just so busy and they're just in that cortisol, go, go, go mindset of like setting time aside to like calm yeah. down enough to have sex. Is that what's going on? Are they just too busy? Right. And then yeah. you cannot have sex. You cannot put something in the vagina but still be intimate and touch each other and spend time together and kiss and do all the things. And so I think it's this whole big spectrum that we talk about when you're like, yeah, we're good without it. Are you just roommates? Where does sex start and end for some people is a very different definition. Yeah. I got several varieties of this one too, from women who started noticing a different odor from their vagina 
after pregnancy and some during pregnancy. Lots of questions about vaginal odor and how it makes them really uncomfortable either to have any kind of sex, but especially oral sex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I always say the experts are like, vaginas smell. Like there are smells to vaginas. Like all of this advertising of like make it smell like an Amazon rainforest or whatever is like not true. (laughs) Or whatever, spring fresh or something like that. There is a smell. It's like there is a musky odor to a vagina and our current marketing purity culture wants us to erase all smells. And so there's part of me that's kind of, again, cringy of like, eh, there is kind of a normal thing that happens. Plus you just had a baby. Plus, so you're still having bleeding of old placental blood of like, it's not supposed to be a spring fresh at some point. That said, if it hurts, if it burns, if it's copious, go get checked out. Make sure you don't have a bacterial overgrowth, a yeast infection, something like that. It can also be a hormone change, right? So right after we have a baby and we're breastfeeding, really low estrogen state. Also see this sometimes in my perimenopause, menopausal women. They notice a change in body odor because of the change in hormones because your microbiome has changed. Estrogen promotes Mm. lactobacillus, which is a nice acidic – it loves acidic environments, right? And as we lose our estrogen, the pH actually changes. So your microbiome is going to change. So certainly that could be what's going on. If it's a a little bit of a musky smell, a lot of doctors are like, it's going to smell. It's just kind of like armpits. Yeah, and I think a lot of women are just overly sensitive to that because of, yeah, marketing. And the more comfortable you are with all – parts of your humanity, the more pleasurable sex is going to be because like you said, then you're not in your head wondering what this other person thinks, which there probably aren't. This person asks about, and quite a few asked about birth control. Specifically, this person says, "I, I was on it for forever, coming off it now after 30 years and wondering what I should expect, can expect. So there's that question. And then a whole bunch of people wanted to know is What are your thoughts on the birth control pill? Don't you think this is trending on Instagram a lot right now? Like birth control is having a moment on Instagram. So (laughs) it'll be fun when it – because there are some like – there's some crazy non-experts out there being like birth control is completely evil. And it's like birth control is incredibly useful. Like it allowed women to go out and have careers and have babies when it's right for them. And I never want to like ever negate the importance of what birth control – it helps – really heavy periods. For some people, it's miserable. Like birth control is amazing. When you come off of it, depends upon how old you are. Some people, if they stay on birth control long enough, they'll stop it and then they won't have any more periods because they're just in menopause, right? So Mm. I think it's going to be a different experience for everybody. Is it safe? Is there something like, you know, for example, my daughter's recently married. Would you have your own daughter take birth control when she's of age? Yeah, my kids are going to get an IUD. IUD is my birth control drug of choice. And the reason okay. for that, a couple of things. Number one, young brains aren't fully developed and remembering to take a pill every day. I can't be trusted. How, how can, I was going to say, I, I don't know about you. It right? has anything to do I, with youth. <laughs> how can I trust a 19-year-old, right? So IUD, I love because yeah, you, don't yeah. have, you don't have to remember to take it. You're not responsible for it, right? And again, this is, I think, where it's a slippery slope towards birth control is evil. But there is some data of it lowers your testosterone. So does it lower your sex drive? Are you going to get a little different hormone changes? I'm not a birth control expert, but I think mm-hmm. the like fears of it that are currently happening on the internet is overblown. This stuff's been around mm. since the 60s. How often do you find that somebody's past sexual abuse as a child is impacting the way that they're able to have or enjoy sex as adult women or men. 
Yeah, I think it's common. I think a lot of people haven't dealt with previous trauma. It's very shameful. They don't know who to talk to. They haven't dealt with that trauma. But I see many, and I say this as an encouragement to people, I see many people with previous history of abuse who are having very safe, very consensual, very pleasurable sex lives. So I want to bring it up and Mm -hmm. thank you for bringing it up to be like, it's possible. It doesn't mean you're broken. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy sex. It doesn't mean all those things that we think it means of like, see somebody process the trauma and it's possible to enjoy sex. That's amazing. So I want to encourage people to do that too. And and that I would assume starting by talking to your therapist and then maybe even a sex therapist. Yeah. And even if they're, you know, survivors groups or lots of different people who can help, even your family, family doctor to get you into the right people to be like, who's safe to talk to about this? Yeah. One of the things that I think so many moms struggle with is like you are able to talk to your girlfriends about pleasure and sex in that kind of way. But for our listeners who have children of the age where like they're going to have to have this conversation, which everyone freaks out about. We make it such a big deal. Do you think that parents should be talking about pleasure and in what way? And are there any resources that you could share with parents who are listening who are like, oh my gosh, I, I have to talk about how to make a baby, but am I supposed to talk about pleasure too? Yeah. I think the big thing is start young and start little. People are like, it's this big conversation. I should probably have a PowerPoint and it's going to be at least six (laughs) chapters long. And like, they're going to ask me to say my references. I should probably put that. It's like, no, no, like one minute conversations 30 times instead of one 30 minute conversation, like break it up. And a lot of times kids won't associate even like early puberty. We start talking about periods. They're not associating periods with sex. They're not associating periods with even getting pregnant. They haven't done that yet. And so it's like, deal with the periods, talk about that being normal, talk about that being your body change, but you don't have to throw in the like sex and everything all at once. It's like little little sound bites to like get you through there. But I think pleasure, like Americans have 1.7 children on average. It's like, (laughs) okay, well, so sex happened, it resulted in a baby 1.7 times right? And all the other times it didn't. What are we doing this for? Why is this important in our lives? Yeah. And I think especially with women, if we don't tell women that pleasure should be equal, talked about and mutual, then you get to where our generation is, where women are like, never really did anything for me. Because we didn't Mm -hmm. even tell them that the clitoris was important. You know, and we Mm -hmm. didn't even tell them that like, sex can be more than just putting something in your vagina. Yeah. Is there a book or something that you would recommend for Again, the, the pleasure part of that. I have to look to see about pleasure. Sex is a funny word is a really nice like early kids book for it. It's ah, over on my bookshelf. Yeah. Sex is a, a funny word. It's <laughs> cute. Well, I think just talking to kids about pleasure is the new frontier of sex ed. You know, it's like you tell kids not to do drugs and then they go do drugs and they didn't die. And then they're like, well, now I don't trust my parents because like the drugs were actually kind of pleasurable. And I didn't die. Right. And I think the same things with sex. Yeah. Of like they t- you tell them not to have sex and they have sex and they're like, oh, I actually kind of felt great and I didn't die. And you're just like, why don't we tell kids the truth and tell kids the point of it and tell kids what it's about? Like we're never going to do wrong by getting more information from good resources, which is parents. Otherwise, they're just going to get their mm. info from their peers or the Internet. <laughs> their peers or their peers older brother or older sister i just remember learning like everything that i probably wasn't ready to learn from someone's older sibling (laughs) in the basement a a boy in my (laughs) class brought a roll of condoms to school in sixth grade catholic grade school there's condoms in the coat room (laughs) 
Like I remember seeing them and I had no idea what even what these were for. Like I had no, I just knew it was bad. <gasps> Wild. So I'm like, that's uh, so funny. Burned into my brain. Can we talk about Green Chef for a moment? I heard this company advertise on another podcast that I absolutely love and the host lost a bunch of weight by having keto meals delivered, which I did not know you could do. So anyways, I know a whole bunch of you just signed up for my fitness subscription on Instagram where I'm I'm showing you exactly what to do to get in incredible shape, build muscle. But what I'm not giving you are meal plans because everybody wants something a little different. And that's where Green Chef comes in because they make it so easy, whether you're, I don't know, maybe you're vegan or vegetarian or you need everything to be gluten-free, or maybe you're totally on a keto phase. Whatever way you're phasing your diet, whatever your dietary needs, they will put together recipes that suit all of your preferences. And then they send you a meal kit. And by the way, it's a myth. Like if you're thinking, well, if I get these meals delivered, isn't that super expensive? No, actually, with Green Chef, you're going to reduce your food waste by up to 38% versus grocery shopping. Okay, but this part is going to blow your mind. Green Chef is giving listeners, are you ready for this? 60% off plus free shipping. Go to greenchef.com forward slash Shaleen 60. So it's not just my name. You want to put six zero, the number after my name because you want 60% off plus free shipping. Again, greenchef.com forward slash Shaleen 60. Not just any meal kit, the number one meal kit for eating well talking to kids about pleasure is the new frontier of sex ed. You know, it's like you tell kids not to do drugs and then they go do drugs and they didn't die. And then they're like, well, now I don't trust my parents because like the drugs were actually kind of pleasurable and I didn't die. Right. And I think the same things with sex. Yeah. Like you, they tell, you tell them not to have sex and they have sex and they're like, oh, I actually kind of felt great and I didn't die. And you're just like, why don't we tell kids the truth and tell kids the point of it and tell kids what it's about? Like we're never going to do wrong by getting more information from good resources, which is parents. Otherwise, they're just going to get their mm. info from their peers or the internet. <laughs> their peers or their peers' older brother or older yeah. sister. I just yeah. remember learning like everything that I probably wasn't ready to learn from someone's older sibling <laughs> in the basement. A, a boy in my <laughs> class brought a roll of condoms to school in sixth grade, Catholic grade school. There's condoms in the coat room. <laughs> Like, I remember seeing them, and I had no idea what, even what these were for. Like, I had no, I just knew it was bad. <gasps> Wild. So I'm like, That's uh, so funny. Burned into my brain. Is it possible for some women to have an orgasm without any clitoral stimulation? Like, so it's vaginal stimulation. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is where the sexperts like get in debates because they're like, it's a vaginal orgasm. That's different. And then people are like, no, you're touching the clitoris through the vaginal wall. It's still a clitoral orgasm. You're just experiencing it in your vagina. Right. So like people will get very nuanced about it. But we have studies in people who are quadriplegics, have had nerve disorders. They learn how to orgasm by stroking their earlobe. So you're like, if orgasm is just an explosion somewhere in the brain, right? We shut off the frontal lobe and then we have a little like party hmm. in the middle of the brain. If the orgasm is truly in the brain, you can be taught to experience it not by touching the clitoris. The clitoris is just your easiest access point because it's what it was actually designed for. Mm -hmm. Right. But I think people get into party tricks. You know, I tell the story of I was doing a lecture with a friend who's kind of a tantric sex person. She knows a lot. And okay. she's like, I'm going to tell the women the 17 different ways to have an orgasm. And I'm like, please don't. 
They just need to have one. They just want to have one. Don't shame them. And now I know they're 16. I need to learn how to have two. At some point, you're like, these are party tricks, people. Are you having a good time? Okay, great. That's all you need to do. Did you see the documentary Orgasm Inc.? No, I haven't. Oh, I interesting. Do a podcast episode on it. Yeah. All right. So I'll just say this. I heard other podcasters talking about it, and it's weird. It's this woman who basically, I mean, the premise of the documentary is that she started this group slash cult where it was just really focused around female pleasure. Yeah. She did a TED talk. It was focused around female pleasure. And then she, you know, men would pay and women would pay to come and learn how to help a woman have an orgasm. Interesting. So many people say like, oh my God, I couldn't even watch for two seconds. Like it was weird, but like it wasn't as like graphic as I thought it was going to be. It was just strange. Yeah. I mean, I think We have so little information and we're so hungry for connection and pleasure that we're willing to pay some charlatans thousands and thousands of dollars to Mm -hmm. access this. Mm -hmm. That's why the education is so important of like, we can learn this and you don't have to pay people $26,000 to go live with them in their sex apartment. I love this question. She says, I have an insanely, unbelievably better orgasm when my bladder is slightly full. So now I'm taking steps to guzzle water if I think we're going to have sex at night. And I'm wondering, is it in my mind or does the bladder have some impact on orgasms? Mm, That's interesting. I would say we have not researched semi-full bladders and pleasure. That The NIH has not funded that study. (laughs) I will let them know there's an eager participant. Yeah, but here's what I would say in my unprofessional opinion is like, keep doing that because whether it is in your head or it really is real, it's working. So continue doing that. Yeah. But along the lines of the subject of the bladder, I also had quite a few people. This is everyone's favorite subject. So warning, we're going to talk about a word that some people liken to the word moist, and that is squirting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this is a big topic because I think from maybe porn or whatever it's been romanticized it's like oh this is you know this thing that you it should be your goal as a man to get a woman to squirt so a couple things number one i have quite a few women asking like is this normal because i am a squirter and is it what is it is it urine is it vaginal fluids that's the first part and the second question was is is this something i can learn to do because my partner wants to help me accomplish that right yeah, I have a lot of thoughts because I've done a lot of reading on this now. I I get it. Like I'm my first instinct, I don't know if it's like a like cuz I'm a mom or I'm a physician is like protect the women, right? So like when it becomes a performance, when sex becomes a to-do list, when sex becomes a like do this for my partner, like you lose the mm-hmm. enjoyment and the whole and so I think there's a lot of performance that gets into the squirting discussion and I always like to start it of that of like you don't need to squirt, you don't have to squirt. If you squirt, yes, you're normal. If you've never squirted, you're totally normal. We're all normal. But what squirting is in movies, a lot of the time it's performance again, right? So we're going to fill up Mm. a bladder. We're going to release some pee. It's going to be a lot of fluid. A lot of that's scripted, right? If it's a little bit of fluid, it's probably the periurethral glands, aka the female prostate, you know, tying into the bladder, the urethra and the periurethral clitoral complex. So the first like knuckle into the vagina and up is the G spot or the G area wherever people, it's not a spot, it's a region. That would be where the female prostate is. The prostate's goal is to release fluid. So that's what squirting is. There are some people with really pelvic strong contractions. It can be urine. Uh, If it's a lot, a lot, it's probably urine. 
They've done some studies mm-hmm. on squirters and actually stained the urine, right, with a medication that stains mm-hmm. urine. And mm-hmm. some of those studies are like, it's pee. And some of the studies are like, it's not pee. Some of the studies say mm. it's a combination of pee and, and female prostate. So to me, I'm like, it doesn't really matter what it is. If you have great sex and you love it and you know that it's all okay and you don't shame yourself for it, like go keep having fun. I love it. And that's the gist of your book. And I think it's a resource that every woman needs to have on her shelf. I love that people, when they read the book, it helps them to have these conversations. I mean, it's just an easy way to like say, oh, I was just reading this thing. And then there you go. You've introduced a conversation that until then felt a little taboo or you didn't quite know how to bring it up. It's so much easier when you're just like, this is interesting. Listen to what I just read. Totally. Yeah. Use me as the reason to talk about it because then it's more like fun fact, right? And I think a lot of us assume yeah. that our partners know more about our bodies, and they don't. And so it, there, it is kind of on us to right. learn about it and share that information. Well, thank you for helping us to do that. And thank you for always like being our go-to on the show. Everybody freaking loves you. So jump in the pod squad, you guys, if you have additional questions. And make sure you grab a copy of this book. It's a must pick up. We'll have a link in the show notes where you can grab yours. Unless, is there another place for us to get it other than Amazon, Kelly? Amazon's great because you can get the audiobook there too. I read the audiobook. So if you like my voice, you're going to get it. You're going to get it for five hours. (laughs) Love it. I'm such a big Audible fan. So I I highly recommend that. And everybody who listens to podcasts usually is. So whether you grab it on Amazon, the hard copy, I'm just suggesting that you get both. Listen to the audio, but the hard copy is what's going to make it easier for you, I think, to be like, hey, you should read this. So pick them both up. How about that? Totally. Awesome. Thanks again for being here. Thanks so much for having me on. Hey, if you enjoyed the show, just do me a favor and double check and make sure that you're subscribed or following if you're actually someone who listens on the Apple podcast. And if you've got just like 30 seconds, it would really mean the world to me if you were able to leave a five-star review and tell me specifically what it is you liked about this episode. My show is released every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I do also have a business podcast that comes out on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I host that with my son, Brock. It's called Build Your Tribe. You should check it out. There's always a link in the show notes. I'm sure you know this, but on Fridays, my episodes are very casual. It's very personal. It's usually stuff with myself and my husband. If you love that kind of stuff, I want to invite you to check out my Patreon. It's all of the Shaleen Show episodes ad-free. In addition to that, for just $5 a month, you get extra episodes. And this is this is the stuff that's like kind of too personal to put on the Shaleen show. It's all personal stuff. There's like no like personal development. It's just real raw. What's going on in our lives, stuff we can't talk about on the show. However, if you are easily offended, Patreon is not for you. That's not the place to be. All right. You can learn more about it by going to patreon.com forward slash the Shaleen show. Any of the links that I referenced in this episode will show up in the show notes, which are just below the episode. To learn more about the services that I offer and to take advantage of some of the free resources, I invite you to check out my website, which can be found at shaleen.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them 
them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. 